culture is very important as employees and customers or patients perception of what your organization is all about. Meaning uh, what's your mission? What's your vision? What are your values? That can lead to either success or failure. Welcome everyone to the Ask a CEO Show. Ask a CEO interviews bring us inside the corner office and C-suite for discussions with top executives about their journey to leadership and the reality of running their companies today. Our host, Greg Demetrio, is the CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, an award-winning integrated marketing company. He is also the founder of gregscorneroffice.com, the home of the Ask a CEO interviews. Greg has been in the business for over 30 years. He is a resource to the media, an invited columnist and speaker on marketing and business topics. Over the years, Greg has talked to hundreds of CEOs and executives about what it took to make it to the corner office and what it is really like being the leader of their companies. And now he brings those conversations to you. Here's Greg now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Greg Demetrio, your host of the Ask a CEO Show. And today we have a really great guest, John Castanis. Uh, he's a healthcare system executive with significant experience across the medical field. Uh, he's taught at leading teaching in specialty hospitals. He's lectured at Harvard and Arcadia universities on healthcare reform. Uh, and John recently has served as president and CEO of University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey as well as president and CEO of Temple University Hospital and the Hospital for Joint Diseases Orthopedic Institute, among several others. He has served on numerous boards and commissioners, commissions and is the board certified as a life fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, glad to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to the medical field, what your personal journey is to that Sure. Um, it's uh, It was a humble experience, but I think I had an advantage because out of college, I got some <clears throat> opportunities where I wound up in healthcare, not in the acute care hospital setting, but more so under the uh, umbrella of mental health. I had a, a good friend and colleague at the time who was running these drug and alcohol programs in upstate New York. And uh, he offered uh, for me not only to join his uh, team of uh, counselors and social workers, but he had a very unique thing going on. Uh, the, his agency had gotten a grant from the New York State Department of uh, Motor Vehicles and also support from the local DA's office to sponsor uh, a drunk driver program. The high incidence of DWIs in that area frustrated the DA and the state police and local police because they just kept seeing repeat offenders. And um, a lot of these um, uh, offenders were, were basically back on the road again with their driver's licenses. So this was an innovative program and we got to write an 11 week curriculum which covered um, physiology, the traffic system, traffic safety. And it had screens uh, developed in the curriculum to identify those that really did have a drinking problem, the, and I guess the bona fide alcoholics, versus those who just <clears throat> were social drinkers and just made the mistake of not understanding uh, certain levels of, of alcohol would get them into trouble in that it would impair their skills and 
they were likely to get arrested for, for drunk driving. Well, that's, that sounds like a major project. And you got involved with that right out of college? Yeah, shortly thereafter. Yeah, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it was unique because I'm an avid horseman and my good friend who ran these programs was the same. And we bought a jumper and hunter. We were going <laughs> to jump hunt scene. And I just wanted to get out of New York City and live in a rural area. And uh, we bought this horse together and he found a way to get me a job. It was that kind of thinking and impracticality that led to a, a bona fide career. Where were you? Where were you? Geography? We were up in Sullivan County. We had oh. our clinics up in Monticello and Liberty, New York. I know. Uh, we also had, we had a, a countywide uh, helpline 24 hours a day. Uh, we all volunteered. We have volunteers trained, but the helpline worked 24-7. And boy, we used to get calls where we had people that were suicidal, oh people DTing, overdose, excuse me, overdosing. It, it was um, quite the program. But cutting to the chase, uh, the program was audited. The drunk driver program, that is, was audited by the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, as well as the um, district attorney's office. And in 1976, now I'm dating myself, I realize that. <laughs> Aren't we all, this, this beard kind of gives me away a little bit, right? Yeah. So, so well, that was that, I mean, that sounds so interesting. Was that the reason why you embarked on a career focused? That on was exactly it. But uh, just to, to summarize what happened in Sullivan County, the New York State Legislature mandated that this type of program be offered to first-time offenders with a DWI, and uh, the curriculum was modified to seven weeks, only offered to the first-time offenders, and they were given uh, conditional driver's licenses, so at least they could go to work right. and also attend the program. So that's still in play, yeah. uh, and uh, we were all very proud of that. But my friend moved on and I became uh, the addiction services coordinator. I got his job and, and title. And I worked with the Sullivan County Mental Health <clears throat> uh, Association. And that's exposed me to uh, a wider array of healthcare providers. I got more involved with the local hospitals. I was attending regional meetings. I was all over the Mid-Hudson Valley, up in Albany. and. People started telling me that if I wanted to get serious about a health management career, I should think about an MBA or an MPH, which I knew nothing about. But I did my homework on that, and I bit the bullet after a couple of years in Sullivan County. I registered, I applied, and I was accepted to the Baruch Mount Sinai School of Medicine MBA program in health administration. And uh, I had a lot of seasonality. Uh, I had to step up from the average uh, graduate student in that program. And as a result, I, I wound up doing an administrative residency, two of them actually, with some top CEOs in, in New York City. So when I graduated, I actually got a first line management position uh, right out of grad school. And that started my whole career as a hospital administrator. So, you, so you've got a really deep resume in terms of healthcare and hospital management. Um, so healthcare is like the top topic of today, right? Especially with COVID. So in terms of the medical and healthcare profession and industry, 
rate the response that you see, the performance that they had responding to the virus. I would give it a high rating. Um, and uh, even though now I'm semi-retired and I'm not currently an active CEO, I had some really firsthand experience. Uh, my uh, association with the Greater New York Hospital Association <clears throat> based in New York City, uh, I was approached by Greater New York to be their liaison at the Javits Center, as well as the USNS Comfort that was docked at Pier 88 on the Hudson River uh, during uh, the, the height <clears throat> of, of our pandemic in New York City, which really started in, in um, late March and all throughout April and parts of May. And this firsthand experience uh, allowed me to really take a look at what was being done and said uh, at all of the major uh, hospital providers, particularly the five academic medical centers, such as NYU Langone, Mount Sinai, Montefiore, Columbia Presbyterian, and the Northwell system. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like being in the eye of the hurricane, kind of a, in a safe observation space. But the Greater New York <clears throat> Association allowed me to participate day, uh, every other day with the top CEOs uh, that were really um, in, in a panic mode with the uh, <clears throat> burgeoning demand for uh, COVID beds. Everybody was presenting in their emergency rooms and it was borderline chaotic you had so many challenges with regard to PPE, access to ventilators, yeah. what drugs to use, the controversy over the application of hydroxychloroquine. So you lived the, so you lived the whole journey, basically. I really did. And I, you know, it was kind of a unique position because uh, being at, at the Javits, I was working with uh, Governor Cuomo's team. By the way, the governor was in charge of that whole Javits operation. He called all the shots with the team that he placed there. And I was advising them because um, these individuals were uh, more accustomed to emergencies like floods, uh, explosions, fires. Healthcare was kind of a, a foreign um, object for them. So I, I felt good being there, giving them advice and also having that connection to the Greater New York Hospital Association, yes. which is a very resourceful group. I'm sure, I'm sure your expertise was very, very valuable. It was a terrible situation. So to answer and your question, I, I give it a high rating, given all the challenges, you know, um, at times, you know, healthcare seems to be like uh, kind of in a status quo, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I've also seen them. I, I was an active CEO during um, the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center. In fact, I ran a frontline hospital in downtown at the Hospital for Joint Diseases and saw the whole attack and actually received patients. Uh, we've seen in New York City uh, the advent of HIV in the early 80s, uh, Hurricane Sandy, labor strikes and such. Uh, this, this town, uh, per se, New York City is a, is a tough place, has always bounced back, but the healthcare providers <clears throat> throughout my my uh, span, my career, uh, I've seen them really respond in the most resourceful way. So I give them a high rating over and over. You know, so when they come to you, when the hospital systems of corporations and, and, and healthcare providers come to you, they're usually major players, yeah? And, and so when they get, get, pick up the phone and call you, 
what types of challenges are they asking you to, to undertake? The ones that I've undertaken, even as a uh, uh, consultant, uh, was mostly about pro providing immediate leadership because I've seen entire C-suites be removed or, or fired, uh, taking control, instilling confidence, and uh, come up with a plan to financially and operationally turn things around. And uh, you also have to do this by way of reestablishing re a new rapport with the medical staff, labor unions, the communities you're serving, local media, and elected officials. So it's a whole bundle of things and you have to be seasoned enough to come in and prioritize and see who you need to talk to first. But um, in a nutshell, that's what I've been asked to do. More recently in this new era, if, you, if we're not quite post COVID yet, but during COVID and post COVID, what I'm, asked, what I'm being asked about more is um, artificial intelligence strategies, telemed strategies, very important population health planning and interoperability with IT systems. It's very interesting because we've spoken to several CEOs from the AI space and uh, several of them are keying in on healthcare. Uh, they feel that it's a, a field where they can really help and they can uh, uh, expand the performance and the level of care. So it's really interesting that you bring up AI uh, as part of as part of what you're being. Oh asking. yeah, it's going to be an integral um, change and improvement in how we provide care. Interesting. So you've held like several high-level executive positions in the healthcare industry. I mean, you were CEO on several major hospitals that even I know uh, in my limited knowledge of the healthcare industry. Which one of those did you find the most challenging? Tell us what it was, where you were working, and what you what was the biggest challenge you faced? By far, when I was president and CEO at Temple University Hospital in northern Philadelphia, that was the most challenging. I, I grew up in New York City, so I knew about poor neighborhoods, whether it was Bed-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, Brownsville, the South Bronx. But when I saw the level of poverty in northern Philadelphia, I was aghast. I, I uh, <clears throat> was really in, in a shock mode seeing uh, the dilapidated homes. Uh, you, I, I drove through neighborhoods where homes had their windows boarded with plywood and doors and you would think, okay, that's an abandoned building. There are people living there. And <clears throat> the, uh, the amount of violence, particularly gun violence and, and the substance abuse, the, the impoverished people that live in North Philly, you know, prompts the question, all right, what's the plan? What's the urban renewal plan here? And in a short time, I realized there was none. I was there from um, 2011 through 2016. And um, <clears throat> we had a situation where Temple University Health System had an academic mission and meaning uh, it was teaching uh, and training uh, future physicians. We had uh, faculty issues. We had uh, a, a very disproportionate share of poor people, as I mentioned, which called for a bona fide population uh, health plan. 
The city has some very famous academic medical centers and other hospital providers, but it's overbedded by 3,000 acute care beds, which kind of gives you an idea of the competition. So Temple University Hospital was um, uh, de facto the poor people's hospital. Mm-hmm. And as a result, most of its revenue was government-based, which barely covered your costs. You had the majority of your revenue coming from Medicare and Medicaid. Because of that, the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania gave us a substantial amount of special appropriations to make up for our losses, recognizing the disproportionate share of poor people that we were serving. And again, we were a 9-11 receiving uh, emergency room, level one trauma, particularly because of the amount of gun violence that we saw. And uh, all the hospitals in our system uh, were not financially viable, except for the flagship, which I ran, the uh, Temple University Hospital. So we, um, we were very, very well uh, equipped. We had a good uh, management team. The dean and CEO was looking to <clears throat> really raise our, our level of um, care. He recruited a lot of top specialists. Uh, we even had uh, all five organ transplant programs reaccredited. And uh, academically, we were really a rising star, but again, in a very competitive field where there was just too much acute care services. So it's really interesting because I'm listening to you and I'm on the advisory board of the Dolan Family Health Center, which is part of the Northville system at Huntington Hospital. And what you've described to me is very, very similar to that. The the clientele, the community around there is is mostly Mm -hmm. underserved, uh, people of color, uh, yet if the, the healthcare facility itself is a first-class health provider, uh, they've been recognized for best practices up and down the system and up and down through New York State. Mm-hmm. So I know the, hand, the handful of work you had to do was amazing because not only are you worried about the hospital itself, its financial well-being, but you need to serve that community that is basically underserved. So it adds such a large dynamic, a large facet to what you were called to do. So I really, boy, I really appreciate that you, you were able to do that. It's really, uh, you know, I, my association with Dolan uh, gives me great feedback on what the healthcare system is all about. And it's not about these big buildings, these big bureaucracies. It's about the individual patient and how it helps. Uh, Mike Dowling knows that Northwell is a great system and they really are sensitive, not only to the communities they serve, but also uh, the staff. We really uh, try to acknowledge their staff and all the hard work that they provide, especially during this past year. But uh, Temple allowed me to get more creative with my team. We reached out because, you know, we're, we're a health industry that still is unfortunately focused on treating the sick rather than trying to uh, deal with the chronic illnesses in Going back to North Philly, you had so much obesity, uh, substance abuse, high blood pressure, asthma. You can just look at all these chronic illnesses that ultimately lead to an acute care uh, admission and usually through the emergency room, which is not cost effective. 
And by the time a lot of these uh, chronic illnesses are presenting in the emergency room, these patients are far gone. They just haven't gotten the right <clears throat> amount of preventative uh, care right. to alleviate the situation. So we reached out with, we had community service uh, workers trained by us, young people with just a high school degree that went post uh, discharge to people's homes with a laptop and Skype capabilities. And a young person who was from the neighborhood was knocking on doors, ringing doorbells. I'm, going very, into I'm very familiar with that. Dolan has what they call as healthcare navigators for those people. And the whole goal is to keep them from getting readmitted to Huntington Hospital. Exactly. And it works, it really does work. The follow-up is key is key to providing good preventative health care. And now we didn't have telehealth the way we have it now. Exactly. Uh, so with, the, with the access to patients through telehealth, you can really get to them uh, or they can get to you as a provider a lot quicker. It's a whole nother, it's a, it's a whole nother dimension to the have. Real new, but but we were innovators there at Temple, uh, just having uh, local people trained to, to go out yeah. on behalf Great. of the hospital. So John, I got to take a little break here to pay some bills and get a word from our sponsor. So we're going to take a little pause and we'll be right back. The Ask a CEO show is brought to you by Lorraine Gregory Communications. Lorraine Gregory is an award-winning agency for digital and traditional advertising. Helping clients' campaigns succeed, they have been telling personal and brand stories for more than 30 years. The agency with a difference, providing strategy, planning, design, and production, including printing, direct mail, and video production. They are your one-stop marketing partner. Check them out today at LorraineGregory.com. And we're back with John Castanis, and we're talking about his journey as a top executive in the healthcare industry. So, John... Our audience is a mix of CEOs and those on their own journey to the C-suite. So let's talk about leadership. What are the three key factors that CEOs should concern themselves with every day, regardless of the industry? Well, first and foremost, as a CEO, when you put your head down on the pillow at night, you want to know that your organization is providing the best quality service or product available at the highest value possible. For hospitals, patient safety is, uh, in my opinion, your number one concern. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you really try to operate at a high level of ethics and morality, meaning you follow the rules, the regulations, the laws, and you do it at, at, with honesty. So uh, it's basically saying, do the right thing. Thirdly, Communicate, communicate, communicate. I have done that with all our stakeholders to the best of my ability. I find that creates a really good culture. You really have to reach out to not only your board, your governing board, um, <clears throat> your rank and file union members. What I've done, um, not only with my regular scheduled monthly meetings with management and physician leaders, uh, on a quarterly basis, I've always tried to meet uh, with the employees without any management present other than myself mm -hmm. and give them my perspective of what's going on financially, operationally, politically, and why the hospital <clears throat> is in the situation it's in and where we're going next. And uh, 
you have to deal with that with a lot of humility because <laughs> uh, you get a lot of tough questions. Yeah. Uh, there's always a lot of critics yeah. and you got to do the best to answer them honestly. You're not going to satisfy all of them. But again, you just have to get out there and let them know you're a real person dealing with real issues. And the more they understand that, the better off the whole organization is. I've kind of found, I've kind of found that if I talk to them, if I explain to them where we're going and what we're trying to do, I get much more buy-in that way than just sending a mere email or <clears throat> anything. We, we actually huddle uh, periodically. We have a management meeting once a week. So everybody's on the same page. They know where we're going. Without that, they're all just like ping pong balls floating around doing their day-to-day, -day, you know, shuffle. So that's really, I find that that's the key is to let them know what's going on. You're not sitting in an ivory tower handing out edicts. You're, you're working as a team. So that, that's really interesting that you operate the same way. And we brought up culture, right? So culture within an organization is really a hot topic nowadays. It's all about how do you build a culture? that sustains the, 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 the business itself. So how about giving us some of your, your keys on culture and why would, um, why would that work in the, in the hospital organization? They're usually so big. Yeah. How do you make the culture prominent? Well, I'm gonna start off by saying the adage about culture can eat strategy for lunch <laughs> every day. Yes. That still holds up. Yes. And uh, that's because culture is very important as employees and customers or patients' perception of what your organization is all about, meaning uh, what's your mission, what's your vision, what are your values. That can lead to either success or failure. So I find culture remains positive when you provide high value and quality for all your services. And if employees at all levels perceive there's a support system for their own benefit, such as health maintenance programs, childcare, affordable health insurance, profit sharing, rewards and discounts, weight loss programs, smoking cessation, recognition programs, all these things that make the individual participant and player, your employee, feel like you really do care about them and you're recognizing all the extra commitment they're making to your organization so that's that's my whole regard to culture yeah. it's, it's I, mean, we, I mean we operate on a real culture basis here we try to keep it as family or i mean we're not nearly as big as a hospital system but we have 25 employees mm -hmm. and they're the ones that drive the bus i steer it but they drive it yeah they're the ones that put gas in the tank well, if, if you don't respect them you really don't i want to i want to know when i come to work in the morning i don't have to hide from anybody you know, yeah. I want them to look at me and say, good morning, and I can, you know, I can engage with them. So that's key, I think. I, I don't think it's a fluff topic. I think it's a real topic, and I think it's really, really important. So you've been up and down the ladder in the healthcare industry. Over yeah. the years, you've developed a particular style of management. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of thumbnail that for us, what your style actually is? Uh, I guess there are different styles, but... Uh... Bottom line for me is I, I tend to be tribunal. I like to collect people around me, depending on the topic or the issue at hand and surround myself with the uh, needed expertise mm -hmm. and, and input. 
but uh, I, I also, you know, have grown my career understanding operations. So I, I lend myself mostly to um, operational aspects, but at the same time, I always have to keep an eye on what's the strategy you know, going forward, because um, in healthcare, particularly, it's a dynamic field. It's ever changing. So um, I came up through the ranks, as I said, through operations. So I do a lot of managing by walking around, like you said, just having that exposure, letting people reach out to you and talk to you. So, and, and then um, strategy for me is just as important in terms of how I'm managing day to day. So you mentioned that the health industry is ever changing. So are there any trends that you see on the horizon that will greatly affect the way healthcare is provided and especially hospital service delivery of healthcare, short-term and long-term? Do you see any really significant ter- uh, trends that the audience would like to hear about? Sure, I, I touched on a little earlier. There's medical technology is just really uh, changing uh, specific to AI and telemedicine innovative thinking and planning. Uh, they're all moving in a, along a, a near geometric uh, progression. And, and look at what happened this past year, the COVID vaccine development. I mean, just how quickly <clears throat> the uh, pharmaceutical and research companies responded uh, to not one, but several mm-hmm. versions of vaccine. So in general, <clears throat> a lot of changes. I'll be a little bit more specific. I, in the, you know, I've, I've been reading and watching what we refer to as disruptive innovators. We have Walmart, Aetna, Google, Amazon, providing primary and preventative uh, care. They're literally encroaching. They've already started. They're going to continue to encroach on the market share of existing healthcare providers, starting with hospitals. Yes, yes. And... Um, that I think um, is probably uh, going to be very innovative because they're, they're allocating more square footage, particularly Walmart. I'll use that as an example. You know, with online ordering, especially through Amazon, a lot of retail sales have declined. So these massive stores that they own, they're allocating more square footage to uh uh, primary and preventative care, diagnostics, including radiology, lab results, et cetera. So that's going to be cash or credit card uh, ready. Yep. And they're going to be prominent as we move along. The other um, big trend that I see, obviously, is telemedicine. Telemedicine meaning the actual medical care that's being provided through telehealth, which is the technology that allows a healthcare provider, a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant to actually reach out <clears throat> to a patient. Uh, and we've noticed uh, during COVID and we're hearing from all third party payers, including Medicare and Medicaid, that telehealth and telemedicine are gonna be reimbursed at a pretty mm-hmm. uh, reasonable rate at some point, for yeah. healthcare providers. Yeah. And another obvious trend is a lot more ambulatory surgery is, is going to be um, <clears throat> approved by third-party payers. You're just seeing the likes of United Health 
Aetna, more and more DRGs are being pushed out, not only to ambulatory surgery centers, but ones that are not affiliated with hospitals, meaning freestanding ambulatory surgery services are being pushed. Beneficiaries are being told, no, this is the ambulatory surgery center you go to, mostly in the category of ophthalmology, uh, otolaryngology, or your nose and throat. And now a good handful of orthopedic DRGs are being referred to freestanding ambulatory surgery centers. Exactly correct. Yeah. So that's going to... The word you use, disruptive, is, is just everything is getting disruptive. Yeah. You know, your and, tech companies are now going into the banking business. That's going to affect your traditional big bank scenario, right? Because they're going to penetrate that market. They had an, an interesting thing on Rocket Mortgage today. They've, the numbers are astronomical, the growth that they've had. And it's an online mortgage provider. Every industry is getting disrupted by the ability of software and technology to do a job. And, you know, I think the, the thing that I hold dear is the healthcare industry is run by people, medical professionals. You bet. Medicine is, an, what they say, it's an art, not a skill, right? Because there's so many decision processes that you can't trust to AI or anything else. You need a human factor to take the whole picture, right? Uh, in other words, you're a patient and you have other issues besides that what you're presenting with, you have family issues, you have societal issues, you have economic issues. AI, I don't think can deal with that. And I think the human is always gonna be the most valuable part of the equation. So in certain regards, it scares me that some people think that AI and future technology is the be all and the end all. Uh, I hope that that doesn't come to pass. Well, you know, continuing in that vein, you're going to see more admissions to hospitals at the high acute level. Technically, we refer to that as the tertiary or quaternary levels of care. So you're going to see a, a significant reduction in acute care because mm -hmm. there are going to be so many other uh, avenues to go to before you actually get into a hospital bed. And then uh, another trend that's going strong is population health strategies. More and more healthcare providers are understanding they got to take a responsibility in addressing real community health needs. And it's not only healthcare that needs to be at the table. You need housing, education, transportation, and those that can provide improved nutritional uh, services to the communities that really need it. So it, the population health strategies really have to incorporate all these other elements uh, addressing real social uh, determinants to really start improving the overall health of the communities that they're they're serving. So that's going to continue to be a, a major trend uh, going forward. John, I have to tell you, this has been such an interesting conversation. I've learned so much from you about what the real management and executive side of healthcare is. So before I let you go, there's a question that I ask all my guests. Sure. And you can answer it from the personal side or the business side or both. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? On the business side, I, I learned something, uh, you know, from, from the onset of my career. If you don't ask, you don't get. Uh, whether you're asking for, uh, <laughs> you know, if you don't ask, 
during your performance evaluation for a higher salary or more of a bonus or a bonus, uh, you just can't shy away from the things that are really eating you up inside or you're just really preoccupied with. You just got to let it out because uh, otherwise you're just not going to get it. And then on, on a personal um, level, you, you may not be able to see it over my shoulder. Hold on a minute. Yes. Oh, an old Schwinn. An old Schwinn bicycle. A friend of mine gave me this when I became, my, when I became uh, for the first time a CEO. And she basically said, okay, Mr. Big Shot, you're going to be the CEO, but remember to keep your balance. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful piece of advice. I love it. In, I love in that it. regard, it was a balance of, uh, you know, not only, uh, <clears throat> you know, check yourself with humility. Yeah. You're not going to, you know, just remain uh, who you normally are, but also a balance of, um, you know, your work, uh, eating well, exercising, you know, just keeping a good perspective on life. John, I got to thank you so much for being on the Ask a CEO as a guest. So if you could tell the audience how to reach you for more information or about yourself or what you do, or if they just want to have a chat, you have the floor. Well, thank you. Um, I have a website at www.johnncastanis.net. My email address is johncastanis at online.net. Or they can call me at 646-872-6961. John, thank you so much. Well, everybody, that's a wrap. And uh, don't miss any of our upcoming Ask the CEO interviews. We have some really good ones booked. Uh, we have uh, great guests coming uh, in every industry from all over the world. The video interviews are available on YouTube at Greg's Corner Office or as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the other streaming services. So if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share far and wide. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. That's a wrap on another Ask a CEO interview. We hope you enjoyed the talk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit gregscorneroffice.com, click the Ask a CEO tab, search your favorite listening app, or view on YouTube. Click the subscribe button, and don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye from Ask a CEO.